HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. This is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. It is spring. Well, it feels like spring. Let's cross our fingers as it is spring. And you never can tell these days, but I'm hoping so. And there's, as, as a result, everyone's busy and got their heads focused and working so hard, getting themselves ready for the season, as I'm sure you are too. I'm on the call today with Justin from Burt Rock Farm in Vermont. Are you there? I'm here, Severn. How are you doing up there? I'm doing pretty well. I still have snow on the ground. I don't know about you. Oh, well, it depends where you are, because we just were up there in Michigan, and there was blizzards and snow, and then we were down in, yeah, there's in Kentucky, and it's already way spring, so now... I'm back in New York State, and it feels feels like feels very warm. Do you have warm air? It's fairly warm when the sun's out, but we're kind of in the clouds a lot today. They're kind of piling up against the greens, and we're we're right. Our farm is right at the bottom of the main spine of the Green Mountains, so the clouds tend to hang for a little bit. So, so anything let's, that's let's not a talk a little bit about, let's right talk now a little bit about your snow covered your farm, and in Vermont, what's going on around you in Vermont? What's going around is a lot of the sugar houses are boiling sap, uh, the roads are turning to mush, and the uh, greenhouses are all hooked up and burning propane, which is <laughs> exciting and nerve-wracking on these nights when it gets down to zero degrees. So let's, let's hear um, about what you produce there on, in your operation in the world and what's being produced um, on either side of you or kind of around you in the valley there. All right, well, I'm in Huntington, which is 25 miles southeast of Burlington, right up against the mountains, and uh, we're on the banks of the Huntington River, so it's all old glacial terraces, which is 
very beautiful and grows very good vegetables. And we do, um, this year we'll be cropping about seven acres of uh, mostly wholesale organic vegetables for sale in the Burlington area and then some down in Boston. And we specialize in winter storage crops and then some greenhouse crops in the summer like eggplant as well as a fair amount of baby spinach from the fields. But our biggest uh, so crop is sweet talk, potatoes. So you, you're apparently onions. very famous for your sweet potatoes. Um, I just wanted to know why you decided to go the route of wholesale. Um, if you started in, in more towards direct sales and then evolved your business to, to more wholesale, or if you, from the beginning, decided that wholesale was the way. No, well, I, I started with wholesale because when we bought our farm... When we bought the farm, I was managing another farm in the next town over, so I didn't really have time to go to markets. So my business plan was kind of developed around growing storage crops for wholesale because I could grow those nights and weekends while I was managing this other farm, put them in storage, and sell them during the winter when I had more time. So I do one winter farmer's market, and that's all the retailing that I do. Got it. Um, Well, that's really very interesting. That's very similar to my friend Ben Abel in Kentucky. He was... His day job was running the the CSA farm at the University of Kentucky, and then his like days and weekends, or his nights and weekends, were spent running a wholesale organic vegetable business. Jeez. So that's funny. The yeah, it's, the thing it's, that, that, that the sounds trickier than this. Like, I, I never had to deliver anything well, until October, at least. Whereas, sounds like your friend down there had to uh, be hawking some tomatoes in the middle of the main season. Um, yeah, well, I mean, the thing that's interesting also is, like, if we're talking about this um, regional food system and, you know, progressively moving out from the lowest hanging fruit, which is selling vegetables at a premium to people who are willing to pay for them by schlepping them there ourselves, and right. then thinking more in terms of the complexity of our, lo- of, our, of our modern world and making it so that more and more of the food that's moving through that system and moving through that system guided by the principles of sustainable production and sustainable mm-hmm. uh, equitable sharing of uh, the parts of the pie, uh, obviously getting more into wholesale markets is a, a major part of that. I, I wonder if you have any kind of practical or philosophical reflections on what changes when you enter one layer of remove with your product. Well, that's kind of why I still like doing the one winter farmer's market because most of the year I talk to, you know, five or six produce buyers, and that's about it. You know, at the stores that I sell to, and that I sell to a couple different multi-farm CSAs. Um, so the winter farmer's market, at least I get to interact with, you know, some of the people who are the end consumers of the produce we've grown, which is, you know, very rewarding. And it's something I don't get for most of the year, um, you know, while we're just growing storage crops and spinach. But it was also practical on my part because in northwest Vermont where I am, it's a pretty mature local food scene. You know, you can't, there aren't too many farmer's markets in the summer that you could join and actually sell $1,000 worth of product at. You know, they're all pretty, pretty full. They're pretty well served by a lot of really talented growers. So it was a practical decision on my part to do mostly wholesaling because I knew there were bigger holes in the market there. And my background was in growing on a, you know, decent-sized scale as compared to, you know, the five acres I'm doing now. So to scale up from zero to, like, seven acres of vegetables was kind of built into the training I already had. 
And now you're at seven acres of vegetables. Are you planning on going bigger, or are you kind of staying? Yeah, I probably or need to, for cash flow reasons, I probably need to plateau up around 12 acres of actual vegetables, you know, perhaps more, but we're somewhat land-limited over here because it's so mountainous. Um, but, you know, that would be my ideal goal because right now I have, we own and have access to about 12 acres of good, you know, high-quality vegetable land. And, you know, I'd absolutely need more than that if I were to grow 12 acres of vegetables. So I'm always kind of hunting around for, you know, some more land leasing opportunities. Um, okay, so let's, so before we go forward into the future and you describe why 12 acres makes sense to you as the right amount of land to work with the equipment and markets that you have, can you talk about what got you to the point where you feel comfortable to be growing seven acres and thinking thinking more? Um, just like starting in year one of agriculture, how step by step they got you to the point where you are, but in very short in a short way. <laughs> sure, I uh, I grew up in Hudson Valley in New York, um, about a half hour southeast of Albany, in Columbia County, where I think you guys have a bunch of friends, and. Um, just by accident, I started working at the farm, which was only a couple miles from my parents' house called Roxbury Farm, which a lot of people in the Northeast will know is a pretty well-established, you know, very well-run organic vegetable operation. They were the first CSA farm down in New York City. So when I was there 10 years ago, they were growing about probably 35 acres of vegetables and another 35 acres of cover crops every year. So I kind of learned how to do farming to the extent to which I learned it on a pretty sizable operation to start off with. So all my benchmarks were kind of pinned to this fairly mechanized, larger-scale system. So I worked there for four years, and I went back to grad school to get a degree in soil science. And after that, um, my future wife and I moved to Vermont, where she's from. And we bought a farm. Um, after being here for a year managing another farm, we bought a place 10 miles down the road from our parents' house. And so in our first year of being here, all I did was plow the ground because I was still managing another farm, and I kind of slowly transitioned out of managing that other farm and uh, got our farm up and running. So I didn't have a lot of the price pressures that a lot of people might have if they're trying to make a living off of, you know, diving in to farming in their first year on their own place. Because when you do that, you often chase those kind of low-hanging fruits of, you know, farmer's markets because they're available, but they might not necessarily be good for your business long-term because there's kind of a price ceiling on how much you know, how much you can earn if you're doing farmer's markets on a small scale. So I built up some relationships with some of the local produce buyers around here, like um, at City Market in Burlington and Healthy Living in South Burlington and the Interbell Food Hub in Burlington. They kind of, we developed a relationship mostly around sweet potatoes and onions. And as the years have progressed, we've been able to expand our offerings. And, you know, we have some great produce. And so let's, so in your, you're talking about this all in a very nice, straightforward, science, matter-of-fact kind of way. And I, want, I wondered if you would tackle also the, the straightforward way that you approach the soil that you chose to farm on, obviously being so close to your wife's parents is a very smart, logical decision. Um, it doesn't yeah, hurt that there's that great soil there. Um, the rigor of a master's program on soil science and mm-hmm. the kind of expert level or bottom level of expert level of understanding of soil as a medium is hmm. something that not all of us who are entering farming come with. Right. What, what do you think is a shortcut to getting that, or else slash, do you feel like it gives you super special powers? 
Well, shortcuts are usually probably not the best avenue to take if you want a really great result in the end. But um, when I when I was working down at Roxbury, we had this nice system where every day we'd, we'd start harvesting at 6, and then we'd take an hour breakfast from 8 till 9, and then we'd take an hour lunch from 1 to 2, and then work again until 5 or so. So that's two hours of short amounts of time where you don't necessarily need to spend all that time eating. It doesn't take an hour to eat breakfast. The work day there had a lot of... Um, breaks in it, so I was able to do a lot of reading. And the farm I was at had a lot of textbooks, more or less, about soils. So that's kind of where that was coming from. Oh, I see. So you got started in your soil study during your lunch break, and then you, yeah, more, you got exactly really lunch breaks, it. Yeah, laying on the couch reading, you know, The Nature and Property of Soils by Brady and Wye, all that sort of thing. Um, and then the and then the geek inside you overtook your life, and you had to go to school for <laughs> How many years? And for, what was that? How, how long does it take to get a degree in soil science? Uh, it takes two to two and a half years, it, you know, depending on your research projects. But mine took me two and a half because I had to wrap up some field seasons. So I took a, a uh, two-season break from farming for grad school. Um, and so oh, by the end of grad while. school, I was like, oh, I, I can't wait to get back to farming. And it was great. It was a great hiatus, and I saved a lot of money in grad school. And, um, and then we moved up here. You're so up in this area now, aren't you? what was the outcome of your research project, or what did you focus on? Um, and does that relate at all to, um, to what you're working on now, what kind of soils you're working with now? Yeah, my research, uh, I was in the horticulture department working on soils, and I was researching a winter nitrogen dynamics in the soil. So what happens to nitrogen in the soil during the time of the year when stuff isn't growing actively? So I was doing my research actually in silage corn, which is only in the ground for four months out of the year. So for eight months out of the year, silage corn fields are just, you know, bare fields with a little bit of stubble. So we were researching what happens with the nitrogen during the winter and Turns out a lot of it disappears, which was already somewhat fairly well known. Well, it turns out it's highly mobile in the environment and it's contaminating yeah, all exactly. the streams. Yeah. And all those microbes in the soil are still mineralizing it even when it's like 33 degrees down there. That's Basically, the, if you could wrap up what I was studying, it's, you know, plant cover crops, you know, prevent soil nudity, that sort of thing. So there's a shortcut for you. What's that? There's a shortcut for you. Plant cover crops. Yeah. Yeah. As Harold Vanessa says, prevent soil nudity. So what so so but this isn't okay, so this brings up kind of another meta question, which is if the if one of the main projects of humanity is to restore and revive the biology of our agricultural soils such that they will resist the degradation and, and erosion and, and, and stick around and grow and be strong enough and healthy enough to provide for food for the future, maybe it makes sense for many, many hundreds of thousands of more of us to go and study soil science, seeing as how the condition of our soils are, are so bad, and maybe the government should even be paying for there to be more soil scientists. Huh, well... I guess I can't say much about that, but I, I, um, I mean the latter part, but maintaining the biological health of your soils is absolutely paramount to long-term success on any piece of ground and enhancing it into a condition that was hopefully better than you found it. We were blessed on our farm that it was in hay before we got it, so 
So in terms of organic matter, it had really high organic matter. A lot of the nutrients were very deficient, but it's easy to add nutrients. It's hard to add organic matter. You know, it had really good structure to it. Lucky dog. Uh, you know, everything we can and do to increase, you know, increase the water-holding capacity of our soils, the nutrient-holding capacity of our soils. and Resilience of the soil being one of the best investments you can make for your long-term success as a farmer uh, yeah. equally could probably be said for our civilization. And then you were saying how lucky you are to have such nice soil where you are. Yeah, well, it's nice soil, but it was nice soil that was in hay, so it hadn't been, you know, plowed and plowed and plowed and plowed and plowed in the recent past, which is, you know, very good because now I'm doing a fair amount of plowing on it. So it's nice to have. And because you were walking into that land that had been in hay and had good, had good structure to it, uh, and you had a really thorough and really good respect for the soil. You probably invested in some equipment that was less uh, destructive of soil structure, like you maybe don't do that much rototilling, or could you reflect on your equipment choices? I do not own a rototiller. Um, I do. You know, we, like I said before, we're pretty mechanized, um, but I, st- I, I vegetable farm kind of like a old time corn grower. Like I still use a three bottom plow and descaros and field cultivators because it doesn't quite do that egg beater thing that rototillers do on the soil. So let's talk about what are those egg beaters doing because we probably have some soil science beginners uh, listening to us. Right, right. Also so some agribusiness executives. <laughs> yeah, rototillers are a fantastic way of getting residue incorporated very quickly. So in the past, a farmer would come in and plow a field with a, you know, two, three, four, five, six bottom plow, then cut it up with a disc harrow, and then level it with springtime harrows or S-tine harrows, something like that. And that process takes about four weeks. A rototiller can come in and do that in one pass, and then you might have to do it again in a couple days. But you use kind of soil violence in, you know, as a way to shave down the time it takes to get ground ready. And so in a lot of times it's definitely the right thing to do. But those egg beaters slice up the soil so much and they break up all the aggregates in the soil. So if you do this, you know, hundreds of times, eventually all those aggregates, which, you know, allow air to infiltrate, allow water to drain, they start to break down. So in my system, I'm breaking up aggregates too, but I I like to think I'm doing it at a slower rate. But it just relies you to, it it, it requires you plan quite a bit more because you have to wait, you know, four weeks to get on a piece of ground because you have to plow it and then disc it and harrow it. And then within the plow and the disc and the harrow, or even like, and even in like the way that you're shaping beds, are you aware or do you tune into conversations about, um, you know, the speed with which you're moving through the field or the angle upon which you're uh, turning the the piece of uh, ground, or oh, like in any yeah. other ways where the technology is really organized and oriented around preserving soil. Uh, so quality? I guess I'd answer that by saying if you do it right, you only have to do it once. And if you have to do it once, you're doing a lot less damage than if you do it twice. So if you plow at the right speed, you'll turn over your furrows the right way. If you go too fast, they'll kind of get splayed out. If you go too slow, they won't roll over. And if you don't have your disc harrow set up right, you, know, you just have to kind of make too many passes. And passes cause compaction and breaking down of soil aggregates and waste diesel fuel. 
sounds so simple and, and easy, and yet the question is always, how long does it take to learn these skills? How, do, how long does it take, realistically, with somebody watching you or not watching you, to, to get into that cherry spot of being like, I have confidence that I can move this machine at the right speed most of the time. I feel ready to move on to the next phase of my farming career where there's nobody fact-checking me. Well, I, I see it as it would be difficult to me to say, for me to say anybody's really ready to run their own operations while they've been farming at least five years for somebody else who's, you know, pretty skilled at what they do. And, you know, some conversations I've had with some farmers who, you know, 20, 30 years older than me say they think it's 10 years. But, you know, it all depends on the individual, too. A lot of people are fast learners and can intuit a lot of it. But a lot of people are getting into this business without enough experience, and you know I think it, it harms them long term because you know there's a lot of skills that are much better learned on somebody else's payroll. Well, and I think that the, the flip side of that piece of advice is if you're feeling antsy that you aren't in control of your destiny yet and you're still working for someone else, yeah, and it's hard for you, then maybe get a winter job that earns a lot or get yourself into a state of proficiency for a supplemental income profession, and don't worry so much about the fact that you can't afford land because maybe you're not ready for it yet either, and you can save yourself the heartache by accepting that fact and and getting a little bit humble and saying, oh, well, I've got another four or five years to put into my training as a farmer before I need, right. to, before I need to take that leap. So, yeah, money is very, very helpful. Absolutely. <laughs> money is helpful. Noted. <laughs> money is ve- no money is very helpful. I mean, it takes many tens of thousands of dollars to you know buy the equipment to grow a couple acres of vegetables. You know, unless you have twenty people at hand who can do the work by hand. But most farmers I talk to say labor is a problem, so you know it's hard to find enough good helpers. So, um, in your off season. What is occupying your time, or what is driving your? What, where where are you doing your um, your other thinking? Oh uh, well, I don't really have a, a proper off season because I do eighty five percent of my sales between October first and April first. So I spend the summer growing and harvesting, and then I put most of the stuff into storage, and then break it out. You know, starting sometime in September and start doing my weekly. I don't even do any deliveries, really, until September. So it kind of takes, you know, my summers are nowhere near as hectic as a lot of, as most vegetable farmers, because I don't go to farmer's markets. I do a few spinach deliveries a week, but those are pretty mellow. So in the winter, it's a lot of washing and packing and delivering of, you know, sweet potatoes, potatoes, winter squash, onions, carrots, beets. It's kind of nice, though, because it's just not as, you know, it's not as flat out as it is in August for people who are growing tomatoes and eggplants and everything else. Well, so, and it also, you know, a lot of um, a lot of growers, well, as more consumers and restaurants and, and everybody is wanting to eat more regionally, and if we're all serious about growing more regionally overall, it seems like your business model is likely to be a more common one moving forward. Do you feel like, there is ample business opportunity to do, to focus um, on storage vegetables as a primary uh, primary outcome of your operation? I think so. The problem with storage vegetables, though, is it does require a fair amount of infrastructure. 
you know, you have to have the facilities to store stuff properly. And there's about five different storage zones that you'd need to cover the full suite of vegetables that you can store in the winter. Um, so, you know, we took out a home equity loan, you know, last fall and built a thousand square foot sweet potato storage barn. And, um, you know, so you have to put the money in, but, you know, up here there's great markets for it. So I, I imagine that's probably the case in lots of other places too. But everybody's markets are very different. And like I said, we're lucky up here to have a very supportive community of uh, food consumers and retailers to work with. And that might not be the case, you know, if you're in somewhere else. Um, okay, so I love I love it to know a little more about the root storage. I feel like people are just get wrapping their hands around heads around um, some of the logistics in in root storage and even coordinating on a low budget different yeah. zones, different storage zones, and mm-hmm. even programming little Arduinos to manage, um, you know, humidity, temperature. Etc. Remotely and like have an emergency backup in case it starts freezing and stuff like that. Do you want to talk a little bit about your system that you set up and where you got the information to design it? Yeah. Well, all um, I mean, all the information on how to store crops. I mean, that stuff is very available just in a simple internet search. Um, but sweet potatoes are kind of an odd vegetable in that they need to be kept hot and humid. So the barn we have for them is kept at 55 degrees and 85 percent humidity all winter. You know, whereas if you're storing onions, you want them to be 32 degrees and dry. So, obviously, they have to be in different places. But the building we put up, I actually divided it into two insulated rooms, and both have radiant heat in the floor. And um, so, one room I actually and kept you, for potatoes. Do you have fans I, I going in them, or like what? What? What do you? How do you keep it continuously 85 degrees in the whole room? Uh, 55 degrees. Sorry, um, 55. Uh, it's a propane on-demand water heater. And we our, our sweet potato harvest this year is about 40,000 pounds, and that took 60 gallons of propane to keep warm all winter. So it was really, really very low fossil fuel use, especially compared to my delivery truck or my greenhouse. But wow. you know, we, it's, a very, it's like a very conventional building. It's just super insulated walls, um, an insulated floor, concrete with... You know, radiant heat in the floor, and it's all hooked up to an on-demand propane hot water heater, which works great. I'd recommend that system to, to anybody who's looking, you know, to do a new construction, obviously. Pretty hard to retrofit something with radiant heat. And you never found other, you know, you just figured out what the conditions were based on the Internet and then just built uh, cooled and heated uh, structures. How do you maintain humidity? If you have 40,000 pounds of sweet potatoes in a 600-square-foot room, it will maintain humidity on its own just because of the evaporation from the roots. But if you need to with a, if you need to raise the humidity in a radiant floor system, you just spray water on the floor and it evaporates. Your problem is often going to be excess humidity if you have that much stuff in that small space. But, in which you know, case, you create a vent out? Too. What's that? In, so if you have excess humidity, you put in a dehumidifier and you put in a vent and blow air through? Yeah, it just depends if you, you know, in the, you can have a, a vent that, you know, exhausts the air out and sucks in cooler, drier air, or you can just use a dehumidifier and dump the water every other day. Yeah, I mean, there's really high-tech ways and low-tech ways. The way I did it is kind of mid-tech, I guess it would be. 
in the past, we, uh, we built an insulated room in our basement of our house that we used to keep the sweet potatoes in, but we kind of outgrew that. And that was very low-tech. That was a space heater. <laughs> um, I, was trying to, I was trying to provoke you to uh, identify some resources where people can read growers' perspectives and, and strategies on root storage, because that was a question that came up last week for somebody who was, you know, working on getting getting their storage situation set up and was like, there must be a book somewhere about cold storage huh, and all I the options know. and all the different doodahs and, and gadgets that you can use. And I said, I don't know about that book. So yeah, it I seems like you don't the know books that are out there <laughs> are either for, like, home gardeners. So, like, you know, the, I think there's a couple books out there about, you know, root cellars. And then there's you know, extension manuals from North Carolina State about how to build a two million bushel sweet potato facility. You know, so I feel like in the middle, there's probably not as much really good information in a book that I knew off the top of my head. But, you know, a lot of that stuff is on the Internet. And then, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of agricultural stuff is definitely deficient on the Internet. But that's one thing that I think there is a fair amount of. And just ask around people who are already doing it. Yeah, I told that person who asked me, I said, go look through the conference proceedings of all the regional ag conferences, sustainable ag conference around you, and if there was one that was about root storage, yeah. call up that farmer. Right. I mean, a book that I'd recommend for any aspiring vegetable farmer, period, is, um, what's it called? Uh, nuts. Uh, nuts Handbook for Vegetable Growers. It's like a 450-page medium-sized paperback. It's super expensive, but it's pretty much got all the numbers you need on growing vegetables, like expected yields, how much nitrogen they need, what storage conditions they need. And that, I mean, that's a great book. I got that for Christmas, like, probably 10 years ago, and it's, you know, very well-worn already. Awesome. Any any other resources or uh, unexpected sources of good 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 ideas that you wanted to highlight from your you make it sound so easy. It's almost it's almost uh, depressing. <laughs> um, the best resource is obviously your smartest farm friend. I make a habit of picking the brains of um, you know, my friends who I know are better than I am at all these different things, and so I just kind of pick their brain until they get annoyed. I mean, that's the best resource most of us have, I imagine. And then giving them some beer so they're not they don't get annoyed by it. Well, that's how you get the information. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you just show up at their farm with a six pack. Well, you heard it here first. Your strategy for success. Um, if you wanted to show up for some other things, I have some announcements. I wanted to say thank you to Justin for his awesome uh, Q and A here, and to all of our listeners. The events that are continuing to occur um, are much, much slower than they are at other times of the year because everybody is too busy to do anything. So most of the events are postponed until later in the season. So I'll tell you about one, which is the Equinox Grange Hall Dance we're having on June 21st at the Grange Hall in Whelensburg, New York. It's a dress, dress ball. And we're going to be building a boat and making all sorts of headdresses and things and a chandelier for the Grange and cooking all day the day before. So if you're considering planning ahead for a little jaunt out into the world, 
consider the Equinox Ball at the Waylandsburg Grange Hall. And that's it. If you haven't already ordered your new Farmer's Almanac, it's 400 pages. It's retardedly amazing. And you can order yours for 20 bucks, or get a feed store or bookstore or any kind of people who are in the new economy of young farmers wanting to distribute it to get a, 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 ten, a little box of 10, and then you get them wholesale. Or you can order them wholesale for your CSA and distribute them as you like. Preview is online on our website, and I look forward to talking to you all next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>